Hi, my name's Gary Cole and welcome to the Football Coaching Life, a podcast brought to you by Football Coaches Australia and Making Media, the podcast professionals. Honoured today to have Trevor Morgan, uh, currently head coach of the Joey's Under-17 team and for the last 18 months he's been our national technical director. Thanks, Trev. Thanks for coming on the show. Absolute pleasure, guys. Um, And uh, yeah, look forward to having a chat with you. It'd be great. It's good. Let's get you introduced properly. So I believe that that Trevor um, fell in love with football, and we'll query him on this, that that, uh, Hazelbrook Hawks on a a muddy old pitch in Sydney's outer west. Uh, Springwood United, Nepean rep teams. Not quite sure about your senior career, Trev, so we'll we'll gorilla you on that one. And then for 20 years, teacher and uh, director of football at Westfield High, which had a a huge impact on so many um, football athletes, including the young uh, Heather Garriock, who went on to play just a, just a measly 130 games for her country. Um, assistant young Socceroos coach, assistant Ollie Roos coach, West Sydney Wanderers Academy, uh, acting Ollie Roos coach when he, went, when he took them to Marbella in Spain just prior to the Olympic Games um, and did a fantastic job at the 2019 um, FIFA Under-17 World Cup, making the knockout stages. Uh, and then we haven't had a... Uh, an underage World Cup since, and I'm sure we'll we'll talk about that today. So, welcome to the welcome to the podcast, Trevor Morgan. Thank you, Gary. That was more than kind. So, um, <laughs> I'm done there. That's my birthday gift. <laughs> Appreciate it. No, it took me hours to work all that that out, mate. So, let, let's be, be, before we get into the, your coaching journey, let, let's talk a little bit about what it's like to be the national technical director. And perhaps more importantly, no, not more importantly, equally as importantly, how do you be the head coach of the under-17 team when there aren't any games? How do you identify and develop athletes via Zoom, essentially? You know, has has the life of a an elite coach been for you in the last couple of years, Trev? Okay, there's a few to bite off there, guys. So, um, <laughs> you know, I mean, the technical director role is a huge honour, Um it, it probably came to me a bit earlier than than maybe it does to some people. Yeah. Uh, what I see it is is a great opportunity because when you when you did your lovely introduction, it, the truth is I wasn't a top player and I had a very small senior career. I actually um, realised quite early when I started coaching early that you know what I'm probably not going to get to the level I'd like to as a player, but this coaching thing is pretty good. And and fortunately, I spent a lot of time coaching at all levels, whether it's youth level, NPL first grade, um, coaching at the school, taking state teams, uh, and then some of the things you mentioned. What, what I think that's given me is actually um, a good understanding of what what actually really happens across the country in, in multiple age groups and multiple levels. So there's a level of empathy and yeah. understanding that comes into the, into the role to start with. And then I feel there's a tremendous opportunity and responsibility to try and do something about uniting the game um, and stop playing the game of who's the smartest one in the building, but actually what are we all doing together to make the game better? So that's that's yeah. the great appeal around that role is to try and affect more people. Um, when I come, when you come back to the question about what it's like to be coaching at national team level in this period, um, it's, uh, it's difficult because you lose connection with the players. Um, Already here in Australia, two two seasons of youth football have been interrupted and stopped partway through. And so yeah. you feel for the players because the rhythm's not there. Um, yeah. 
we set up some amazing talent ID activities last year just to start to get the ball rolling internally and then border closures. Um, now, yeah. I'm not going to blame all the premiers for that. Some of them, I think, were a little bit nervous about not so much. Um, but what it meant is the kids missed that opportunity. And you know, you know yourself as a, as a former Socceroo, w- what it means to have that chance to come into camp with the best of the best and, and then challenge Absolutely. yourself. So it's the honour of coming in, but it's also the challenge of looking over and saying, this is going to be a tough day at work. Oh, they're all good. Yeah. Um, and, and, and I think that, that that positive competition that we create within a national team, that it's not negative, it's positive, but you're looking across yeah. and you, 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 you know it's going to need to be good today. What a great place to be when you've got people on the edge of their ability and then you're trying to give them small challenges and small bits of help and then you're giving them a a why, which is you're representing your country. Um, It's a great place to be. So we've been starved of that a bit. But, uh, you know, we're looking forward to all youth national teams and uh, starting to to pop their head up again and start to, to play internationally. Yeah. Yeah, The I was having a, a look through the other day in, in doing the research here and that group that went to the other under-17 World Cup in 2019, they're 20, they're 20 years old now, most of them, or turning 20. Um, you know, what a couple of years that's been, the excitement of doing all that and then, and then going some to A-League clubs, some into Europe uh, and football being stop-start. How, how's, their, how's their progress and development been impacted, do you reckon? Less so than the national teams, Gary. The the um, the ones that have stayed here and played in the A League that have done well, um, it's fantastic. And there's several boys from the World Cup squad that have played in the A League um, since then. The ones that are overseas, um, you know, one of the biggest highs was seeing Caleb Watts make his Premier League debut, and then a few weeks later come on at Man City with Aguero at the same time, and he's 19 years old. Um, Ryan Teague's playing in the second tier in um, in, in Portugal, um, and and uh, you know there's there's several players in Europe in, in, in Poland and in in, um, in uh, Austria, and then even young yeah. Nick Lokopic, who was the goalkeeper who didn't play at the World Cup, um, yeah. you know he he, he made a, um, a FA Cup appearance against Burnley recently, so he, he's played the top level in England. Uh, and he's with a championship yeah. club. He's out on loan now. That boy is now six foot five. Um, and, and the keeper that did play, Adam Pavlicic, you know, has played Champions League for Sydney. Um, they're, they're wonderful young men. Um, they're close to each other still because of the, the opportunity. Um, and, of course, it's been difficult and challenging for all of them because they've had to be away from home in COVID or whatever the situation. But yeah. because football, because the endeavour of football is that people just want to get on with it, these boys are a part of that. And, uh, and their careers are still progressing, which is, I mean, I'm super proud. 17 out of those 21 players have already played first-team football somewhere. Yeah. At a professional That's, level. So it's, it's fantastic. It is. It is. All, all power to you. But Trev, a couple more around that, the, the national team set up um, at that youth level because the, there's been, there hasn't been... Um, the 2021 FIFA Under-17 World Cup was cancelled and has been rescheduled for 2023 in Peru. Yes. Um, and I think, I think we finally got a 2023 Asian Cup qualifying tournament, which is later this year in Uzbekistan. Is that, is that correct? 
Okay, so well, the, 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 it, it close. The under 17s and 20s, both their World Cups were cancelled. Um, yep. uh, so in 2023, that will happen again. We yet to qualify for both of those. We start qualifying at the back end of this year with the young Socceroos and Joey's age groups. Yep. Um, Peru is the default venue because they were meant to hold the World Cup in 2019. Yeah. There was an issue, Brazil took it. It was meant to happen in 21 and, and now 23. <laughs> Um, with the under-23s, the qualifying tournament we went to late last year in Tajikistan um, has qualified us for the Asian Cup. So coming up in June this year, the under-23 national team will um, will play in Uz Uzbekistan for the under-23 championship. Um, and that's a straight-out Asian Cup. Um, yeah. Then that same group or majority of that group um, could continue on to start a new qualifying cycle to try and make the Paris Olympic Games in 24. Yeah. And at the moment, that position, head coaching position for the under-23s is vacant. So is that just one more little part-time job that you, that you pick up as, as acting under-23 coach or what, what do you think might happen there? I think we have a, a great endeavour to get the right person into that role. It's yeah. a really, really vital role. If you look at things like the performance gap reports, yeah. you look at the some of the data that points to if you play a lot of football at either domestic competition here or overseas at the right age, and then you play for your national team, and if you make it as far as the Olympic Games, the chance of becoming a top-level pro is really, really high. If you, if yeah. you meet those tests, you get there. Um, and we... We uh, really believe strongly that the area of focus that we, we haven't paid enough attention to is, is that 17 to 23 age group and, and yeah. really trying to get as many players to transition to being men and playing in men's football is for the guys and obviously for the, for the girls is to, is, to, is to transition to senior women's football. Of course. So the, the opportunity with that Oli Roos group um, is to do amazing things and we really need to get the right person into that role and, um, and Football Australia... You know, the process has taken a while and we've had a few hurdles, um, but I think there's great endeavour to try and ensure that we get the right person in there um, yeah. that can really make the program special. It's, it's about the team performing well, but it's about career progression for the players. And so someone yeah. who can do that role, it's really important. Is it all also about career progression for the coaches as well? Is that a role where we, uh, as a country, would prefer to see an Australian coach that's developing as a part of our, our coach development role? Is, is that a natural part of this process or is it we want the best coach that we can get? It's a difficult question, isn't it? You always want the best coach you can get <laughs> because the players deserve the best coach possible. Uh, I guess to answer that question the right way, Gary, is that we have to improve our Australian coaches to the level where that is the right decision anyway. Yeah. Um, I believe in Australian coaches. Uh, I'm fortunate now to be helping a few people on their pro licence I look at the ones that are trailblazing overseas and it's it's nice to see it's an increasing number at the moment. Yeah. Um, so I'd like to think that Australian coaches are as good or capable of as good as anybody in the world. Yeah. Um, and, and with this role specifically, there there is a level of requirement that that person um, can, can, can understand how those players are going to get to the top leagues in the world so they can become the best player possible. Um, at the same time, it's great to have a knowledge of Asian football and of the Australian of ecosystem. So there's a few things there that point to an Australian coach might have an advantage, but they have to be a, a very, very good coach, Gary, yeah. and I, I believe. You know, they have to be 
like you say, able to coach a team, but actually able to long-term help guide an individual to a better career. Yeah. Yeah, no, I like that. Let's let's come back to that because I think that's a that's a great place to have a chat. But but we invited on today to talk about you and your coaching career. So, Trevor, how did how did you get into coaching? Well, this is this is actually thinking about speaking to you today. I had to think about who influenced me because it's always about who who got you going right. Yeah. Um, and yeah, it was the Hazelbrook Hawks, and I think I was under sixes and. Um, we weren't far off uh, the Manchester City sort of kit now, the light blue. And um, I think my parents just asked me, do you want to play soccer? And I said, I, what's that? So we went and had a go. And, and you know, the, the, I guess the love of the game is is the enduring thing for all of us, is the absolute Absolutely. love of the game, um, the pleasure of seeing wonderful football. And then if you're lucky enough to be part of that wonderful football, even better. Um, so getting into coaching... I was a pretty average player, to be fair, Gaz. I was good enough to play state league, I think. I don't think I would have been an NSL player. Um, technically okay, maybe not quick enough, you know. I, I, I don't know. But I went to university um, out of Bathurst, actually, and I ran into a guy, yeah. a Scottish guy, a lecturer named Joe Judge. And Joe inspired everybody he taught by his knowledge, his enthusiasm, his professionalism, his standards. And... A few of us were going through our, our university course and, and we needed to do a work placement. And he set me up with David Lee. And so I went and did a talented athlete camp. Um, and I was 19 years of age, maybe. Um, and the young players in that camp were Brett Emerton, Harry Kuehl, uh, Archie Thompson, Paul Yates. Um, it was a uh, Paul Reed may have been there. They're all around that age. And um, it was around Italia 90. So even Paul Ocon dropped in because he was just about to move overseas and he was the big name Marconi player coming to say goodbye to the kids and talk about what it's going to be like being a pro. And yeah. So that was my start. And, and we worked probably about a 70 or 80 hour a week because David squeezed everything out of the day possible. Um, uh, warm up with the ball before breakfast, have breakfast, two sessions, lunch, another session, a drink break, competitions in the afternoon, uh, dinner, after dinner, either more juggling or small-sided games in the gym. And every session that was competitive, you had to keep score and update the score. And if it wasn't on the window of the of the dining hall, by the time the kids lined up, someone was yelling at you, usually David, but often the kids as well. And, and I learned about the competitive environment and really setting high standards there with Dave. And he was a, a very learned man, but he, he had a, an issue that he, 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 he didn't have two, three degrees. He's just a super smart guy and he drove a cab for a living. Um, mm. But he was so visionary with some of the things that he set up and how he simplified the He had the same desire that you see in some of our most successful coaches now. I mean, I remember him saying, don't worry about this and that. You give me a million bucks, I won't just get you to the World Cup, I'll win the World Cup. Now, back in 1990, maybe that was achievable, right? Um, financially. But he did yeah. great things. He, he, he got interested in the Curver program and he brought curver into the program and next thing you know the players the young players are being taught the step overs and yeah and bits and pieces there um and then after that um uh i got put through my licenses and my instructor you you know him well is was casey de bruin who was a lenny mckendry fan right yeah um and so i had i had then the opportunity to fail my course and then pass my course under casey and eventually my level three in about 1993 um 
So that's what got me into coaching. But it was a love of the game because even then at 19, I'd already done some club coaching of under-12s and under-13s, thinking yeah. I'll play, but I'll also coach a team on the weekend. And that, that interaction with people, when you when you help someone with the game and they, they get it and they look at you and you get that feeling like, wow, that was good, that's a, that's a, that's a buzz of its own. It's not as good as playing, but it's, it's, it's great. Yeah. Did, did that then flow into Westfield High and, and, and teaching and, and phys ed teaching and then the football program there? Yeah, it didn't happen straight away. I actually took a job teaching in Blaney of all places, so um, uh, out in the West. Um, and, and probably the most outstanding thing happened there is that I taught a young kid who had a disability um, and I was challenged to make physical education sessions for this kid that was just relentless in his desire to be the best he could be. Um, I I left there and went overseas for a year and did some coaching in in USA and England and and did some badges and things. And then the opportunity came up for a job um, working for football New South Wales for about $10,000 a year. And I took it. (laughs) I came back from England to do that. And then, then out of, out of that chance, I was, I was guided to Westfields. Now, the reason I told you about the kid that inspired me back at high school, that turned out to be Kurt Fernley. Is that right? So, yeah. Wow. And, and I only saw Kurt just recently um, at a Socceroos match. And it's just, you know, 25, 30 years later, and he's an absolute legend uh, of Paralympic is. sport. And, and yeah, I can just, I can clearly remember him doing things when he was in year seven, trying to do parallel bar routines in gymnastics yeah. <laughs> with his, his, uh, his, his challenges. So, um, it didn't come straight away. It was a love of teaching and helping people. Then I travelled. I wanted to broaden my, my perspective on the world and learn a bit more about coaching. And then this opportunity came. And so I came back. And um, the first job I had, I ended up with um, working with players like young Mickey Thompson. He was probably 13 or 14. And I was working down in the, in the Campbelltown area. And then the job at West Hills came up. And, um, and yeah, and that was about 97. And... Um, Trev, how important that being able to coach, you know, every day, almost every day, um, how important was that for your development as a coach? You, you can't replace it, Gaz. Um, we, we, we were doing three, four sessions a day. I was coaching state league at night. Um, so I think over a 15, 16-year period, I did thousands of sessions. Absolutely thousands of sessions. And we had to write our own curriculum. We had to work out how to do all of the all the player profiling. Um, how do we make players better? Watch them play on the weekend for their club. How do we balance up the workloads and bits and pieces is invaluable. And and so um, practicing, you know, 20 plus sessions a week for 15 or so years um, and coaching games on the weekend um, yeah, I'm so thankful for the opportunity because it was what was great about it. And I think if you ask Smudge, he'd say the same about the AOS is that you're allowed to be curious and um, and innovate and try things. And um, that was so enjoyable at the school because then at, at times you, we, we, we made up a game for a while there. It was um, uh, two or three touch and the ball can't hit the ground. Um, and it was a small sided game, but you had players of the level of Aaron Moy and um, uh, Anthony Caceres and uh, Mustafa Amini, Terry Antonis, uh, the Trafiro boys, like all, all in Nathan Burns, all in the game. Yeah. And, and, you know, Bernie Ibeni, uh, Matty Ryan, they were all 
within two or three years of age and we put them on the pitch and play three touches the ball can't hit the ground and see what technique level came out and it's exceptional and then if it wasn't yeah. good enough we just worked on what we needed to create that they could actually play that game at a higher level what do we have yeah. to make change in their touch or their quality um so yeah experimenting was vital yeah trev do you think it's fair to say that you 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 know you get to make get to do a lot of sessions you get to work out what works, what doesn't work. Um, you, you make, um, oh, I don't know about you, but I, I, I made an awful lot of mistakes early on and you go, okay, that's good. I know one more thing that doesn't work. Um, so to, to have that length of time to, to hone your craft is just a, a remarkable opportunity, isn't it? Uh, like I said before, you, you, you can't underestimate the impact on your career um, yeah. If you really, if you have, if you have self improvement in your heart, then then and you're honest, and you also have some some peers who will um, be honest with you and say, "What are you doing today? What was that trying to do?" Um, and and I was fortunate. Obviously, Casey was working with me at the school for you know, and used to come a couple of days a week. We'd drive up and talk football for an hour and a half on the way to school, and drive drive back an hour and a half on the way back. So you pull every session apart, every opportunity. How do we make you do that? Why didn't you understand that? Why can't she do this? Um, and then just try the next day. Just let's do it. Let's, yeah. let's try again. You've mentioned Case and, and David Lee. Who who had the most? Who do you think had the most influence on you um, as a coach? Yeah, so hard. Um, uh, in the end, I'll, I will say Case because I end up marrying into the family and I suppose we spent 20 years working together. Um, but each of the people, each of the people, like the level that Joe Judge set um, in, in coaching us out at Bathurst when we were just young kids and playing and then and then leading us into coaching. Um, David Lee was just a one-line king. Sometimes it was very cutting, but other times it was just such genius. Yeah. Um, and then since then... I mean, look at the people I, I get to spend my time with. I'm working with Australian legends of the game. Um, and and through those experiences, I think you learn off everybody. But, yeah, I would say Case has been the most influential. The great thing is that now I've grown up enough that I am, so I don't copy too much anymore. I just learn from people, but I don't change myself too much. Yeah, yeah. You have to say Case as well as your father-in-law, isn't he? Yeah, he is. Yeah. <laughs> we love it. Good on you, Case. And he's uh, he's had a few health challenges at the moment, so we wish him and the family uh, uh, well as well. So please pass on our best wishes. So, mate, what is coaching? It's the second best thing, isn't it, in the world? Um, yeah, it's it's a it's a multitask activity. Uh, it depends on your perspective. Is it about you and getting a message across or is it about the player and, and, and helping them find solutions to things, challenging people when they need to be challenged? Um, I think it's everything. And it's a, you know, it's a, it's a coming together about a group of people with something they love doing and then setting challenges and, and rising above expectations. And um, so coaching is leadership. Leadership for me is parenthood. Um, if you take the parent perspective that one day you want them to walk on their own and do their own thing, and it's not I'm always going to fill them up with all the answers, but rather 
I'm going to help them find what they're really, really good at. And then I'm going to try and inspire them. I'm going to show them high standards, but eventually I'm going to take my hand off the back of the bike seat and let them either fall over or, or go. And I think coaching, really top coaching, um, you, you still have points of influence, but more and more you're handing over, especially the more mature they are, the more you're actually probably sitting back going, well, really all I've got to do now is keep this person at the level and push them a little bit because they already bring so much to the game now and they, they've, yeah. they've grown so much from the processes over time that really I, I could be redundant if I do my job to the best of my ability. <laughs> It's not not a coach in the world, not a coach in the world to disagree with that. Um, but they're all gamefully employed, so there's there's plenty of opportunity there. Isn't there? Maybe they're just some bad players, so they have to work hard. Yes, <laughs> mate. On that, in terms of what it is to be a coach, where do you sit? One of the things that came out. Sorry, I've gone off on a little sidetrack. I was listening to a um, a business podcast one day. And they were talking about the difference between aspiration and capability. And I thought, bloody hell, that's a really good question for coaches because nowadays, you know, you've got to have a coaching philosophy. You need to really understand how you want to play. Um, and this is how we want to play. And right now, today, at this time, with these players in this team at this club, this is where we're at. How do you balance this aspiration and capability conundrum? I think you 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 should always um, aim for the aspiration because if you don't show a picture of how they're going to be better, uh, I, I feel that it would be wrong to limit people to what they can do now. Yeah. I'd rather show them where they can go. So I would always err on the side of aspiration. Um, and, you know, the people that say, oh, you, you can't play like Barcelona in Australia. Um, well, actually, Barcelona are playing against peers of their level. And here in the Australian leagues, if you're coaching against or you're playing against peers of your level, why can't you play like that if you want to? Um, I think also that I don't, I don't subscribe to the mentality, look, this is the player's limitation, so I'll only coach to the limitations. I think we should actually be saying, and, and maybe that's, that's not, not um, realistic, but I believe we should be saying to the player, look, what the best players in the world do is this. Let's try and take you there as far as you can go and then see what that does to our football. Uh, so I will always err on the aspirational side. Um, but also there's a realistic side. I'm a, I'm a development coach at heart. Probably yeah. as much as a team coach, I'm a development coach. So then you've got to think, how's this, how's this person going to get a job when they leave me? Yeah. How's someone going to sign them? And so they need to be well-rounded players. They need to be aspirational and positive. They also need to be intelligent and you know, particularly something like defending, when do I be really brave and really go for something and when do I recognise a situation where I need to be calm and smart and um, and, and a bit more patient in, in my actions. Um, and, and so that's probably the little... That's where I see the conundrum is you want them to be brave, you want them to go for things, but you want them yeah. also to recognise when opportunity isn't there. Yeah. So you want to be able to think... Yeah, in in the action, yeah. You want them to think yeah. for themselves in the action. Yeah, I, you, you mentioned something there about what are the best players in the world doing. Uh, one of the things I loved about 
uh, Ronnie Smith Smudger and, and working with him at the AIS was that was the constant catch cry, you know, him. What what were the behaviours? What were the best players in the world doing? Not what system were they playing? It was what what are the best players in the world doing? Offensively, what were the best players in the world doing defensively, and how can we help these young men um, adopt those behaviours? You know, and I. That resonate with me, and I, I, I have to admit, I used it during um, my short period of time coaching. But I, I wonder at times whether we've we've gone away from that and got caught up too much in systems and you know patterns of play and philosophies and all this, as opposed to saying to kids, if you've got this set of behaviours, you can probably play in any team in the world, in any system in the world, because you've got the the skills that the best players in the world have. Totally agree with you. Um, from a philosophy point of view, the last competitive team that I really got to put time into was the, was the, the Joeys that went in 2019. Yeah. Um, and <clears throat> they'd grown up playing the 4-3-3. They'd pretty much, the, the younger half of the team had all done skill acquisition from day one. Um, and um, they're a well-balanced team, technically quite good. And I saw things in individual players and I thought to myself, if I play strictly by a formation here, I'm going I'm to limit someone's capacity to express themselves. Yeah. So what we did is we actually focused on my, one main thing, Gaz, and that was to manage transition. Like Apart from the obvious things, you've got to show your yeah. pressing structure and all that sort of business. But we looked at how we would manage transition, how we would, how we would what people call rest defence, how we would manage that moment as best as possible. And I was a bit of a fan of the Brazilian box look where you have two centre-backs and you have two other players who play in front. With the Brazilian teams, often the two sixes. But with me, I think it could be... And then everybody else, give me forward runs, give me combination play, give me width where we need it. Um, and so <clears throat> there's many clips where my number six, my central midfielder, is actually in the six-yard box trying to finish the goal. And the fullback is covering him and the winger is somewhere else. And people say, oh... Yeah, I'm not sure you got forward much. I said, oh, why is the number six actually 40 metres forward of where he would be? If, if... So that's that, that for me, I wanted the kid to express himself. Yeah. Um, and, and we wanted that for every position. So they had certain key things they need to do, but we structured the way we played to allow them to, to have combination play, to express themselves and to create, create um, balance and in, intelligence. So <clears throat> if I chose to make a forward run, you would stay. Now, I don't think that's any different to what we did in the 70s especially when you had two midfielders and you thought, okay, one goes and one stays. So yeah. we tried to bring a bit of that back, a bit of common sense about covering people, but far less time spent on repeating um, formations and more about relationships and, and how do we manage what we, what we have organised in relation to the opponent and the opportunity. I like that a lot. Thanks, mate. You're listening to The Football Coaching Life, a podcast brought to you by Football Coaches Australia and Making Media, the podcast professionals. We're honoured today as a, to have as our guest Trevor Morgan, National Technical Director, and Joe is National Joe, is, who's our under-17 coach. And we're having a good old chinwag about Trevor's coaching journey, thoughts, views and beliefs. We're making some progress. So let, let's keep going. Trev, you, you, you've mentioned the, the length of your, your coaching journey. I think you're around about the Hawaii 5-0 stakes now in terms of age? Yes, and I'm hoping to stay there as long as possible. <laughs> Good on you, mate. So 
how how has your coaching changed or developed over your journey? I would consider myself passionate about the game, Gary. I'd consider myself open and, and humble enough to realise that I'm not the best. Uh, so <clears throat> fortunately for me, you know, I've worked with, even over the last 10 years, <clears throat> I know, uh, half a dozen Australian coaches, some foreign top-level coaches. Uh, now in this, in this technical director's role, I get to meet some amazing people and, and pick their, their brains. How's it evolved? Uh, it's evolved where you never stop learning and you really enjoy talking football with, with people who've really done some amazing things. But you also start to settle down as an individual and think, not so much about needing to change rapidly in any direction, but rather, <clears throat> pardon me, but rather that you you try and bring things on board or you say, okay, that's nice, that's that's a little bit me. And yeah. so I think I've become more steady um, and more clear in my vision of how I would coach not only players, but how I would get my staff to work with me to, to get the best out of people. Yeah. No, I like that. The, the um, you, you mentioned something before early on in the piece about you know not having the the elite senior career that you did and and in doing this this is you know we've been doing this for over a year now I think twenty six twenty seven coaches men and women that coach here in Australia and abroad and you come through and it's really really interesting because there's there's essentially two there's the there's the ones that have been um, elite professional players, men or women, that sort of role from that, they finish their playing career, may have a really short time as an assistant coach. Some of them don't even have that. They go bang, finish playing, and you know they've got their licences along the way and they go straight into an elite coaching job, which is really, really interesting because you <laughs> don't know about you, but when I, when I moved into that coaching, head coaching job for the first time, I found out that I didn't know what I didn't know. Um, so there's a fairly steep learning curve. And then there's the people like yourself and Joe Montemuro that have come through to the elite level, but they've done that through honing their craft over a long time, really understanding the game and working out what it means and having a philosophy and learning all the things that, that, that you've said along the way. And, and the reality is, there's no right way or wrong way, is there? It's just these are two clear pathways. Um, and it probably seems, to me at least, you go, well, it seems a little bit unfair that, you know, Joe sort of started coaching when he was 26 and it took him, you know, 15 years to get a, a, a shot. But then you, you understand the way the game works and the fact that it's much easier if you've, if you've been John Aloisi or Kevin Musket or, or Tony Popovich to go bang and, and, you know, clubs in professional clubs are, are more willing to accept your knowledge of the game um, to, to give you a gig early on. I think that's a reasonable summary. I think it's, it's, it's fine with me. Um, and um, the reality is, guys, that, not everyone who is a player becomes a top coach, right? But Absolutely. the challenge of having to, the challenge of having to put yourself through what's required to play as a full time professional at the highest level, and to be a national team player, um, there's certain key attributes: personality, commitment, 
attention to detail, competitiveness, that are going to be very, very transferable skills into other areas as well. If they choose to go Absolutely. into coaching and they can manage, I guess, learning to organise other people as opposed to being organised, that's one of the key things. But the level of professionalism, being on time, um, you know, eating right. I mean, there's so many coaches you see, they still treat themselves like a player. So I don't yeah. begrudge anybody who's been a top player who's had um, success as a coach because I think they, they, they earned that right and they earned those level of contacts through the level of commitment they displayed to get to where they did in the first place. But, but for sure, if you don't have that initial foot in the door, that initial profile, then it's going to come from hard work. And it's, yeah. it's hard work doing something else when the other, player, the other person was running and playing as a pro. You, you, have, to, you have to catch up. Yeah. You've, you've got to put yourself out there and, and, and take on jobs and, and put everything you can into it, learn from it, learn from your mistakes, and then look for the next opportunity and, and, and uh, work your way through that. That's, that's really the pathway, isn't it? Yeah, it is. And, and you know, I'd often articulate it this way, that if you, if you stop running in the race, you can never win. So those people <laughs> who get frustrated and give up, it's over for them. The, yeah. the people who keep trying to get better, you don't know where you're going to end up. And I often yeah. say to young players, if you, if you think you're going into a lift in a hotel, um, if, if you're a really good young player and you prepare as best you can and you step in the lift, you don't know what level you're getting out at. You don't know if you're going straight to the top or whether it's going to take you a step at a time. Yeah. But if I come back to the race analogy, as soon as you stop running, it's out. And yeah. and so the, the love of the game, again, that I said at the start, the, the desire to get better, why did I work the hours I worked for, for 20 years? Um, because I just loved it. Just yeah. loved it. And, I, and giving up wasn't an option. Like it was like, okay, someone else is ahead of you right now, but get on with it. And, um, and I'm pretty sure the players who have gone on to be top coaches have also taken that path, right? They've had their challenges as a player and had to wait and be on the bench and yeah. fight for a spot. You know? Trev, on the way, have you had a formal coaching mentor or you've obviously arranged different people that have influenced you? Have you, have you ever had someone that's been locked in that you can pick up the phone and bounce ideas off and go, bloody hell, this won't work? You know, how, how on earth am I going to do this? Yeah, not, no, not, not particular. And I think that's a really key opportunity for um, both FCA and Football Australia to try and find those experiences that could help other people with their journey now. Um, we actually want to restructure the way courses are done now to reduce the amount of face-to-face -face time on theory and increase the amount of time where we might have a mentor um, helping a coach uh, yeah. and, and, and that one-on-one yeah, mate, you did well, but why did you get angry about that? Why did that bother you? Um, and um, I think of, you know, I think having critical friends I've had before where I've had a, yeah. a colleague or a peer that we ring up and say, go on, tell me. Um, so certainly that critical friend concept, but as opposed yeah. to a, an older mentor, um, no, no. Yeah. How about other sports? You've you obviously been engulfed in football, but... Have have you have you taken any learnings from other sports, not necessarily in the technical aspects of the game, but in the the leadership and the the, the culture development, those sorts of things? Yeah, I, I've got a, a pile of books over here about leadership. Um, one of the first and most remarkable ones is probably Rick Charlesworth, the coach. Um, 
it's it's an amazing book. Um, I've got Rudy Giuliani about leadership. Um, I've got uh, you know the more recent ones like Legacy. Um, but even there was a great one, Any Given Team. So that's leading to the leading teams company and Ray McLean. Yeah. That's really a big AFL background, that. Um, uh, heaps of books on leadership. Um, a lot of stuff, uh, Malcolm Gladwell, about, about leading others. Um, one of the great ones is a Good to Great, uh, Jim Collins, yeah. where it does, you know, about what, what a level five leader does. So a lot of leadership stuff um, that, that I've, I've, I've actually read a lot and then when i attend a, a conference or something and i find someone to be amazing I, i've tried to find a chance to reach reach out and buy my coffee and learn something yeah um and so i've got a network of great people that i can pick up the phone and talk to in other sports and and, and people who work across sports as well um yeah. and you know you never know where that network takes you um and and the people you get in touch with and, and the value it adds to what you you can do one wonderful investment is a cup of buying someone a cup of coffee and maybe a lunch as well. It's amazing what you can learn. Amazing what people are prepared to share. And I have to say, I love that about coaches because I found in the main coaches, um, you know, there are some that are sort of I've got the secrets, but in the main, the the best ones are just like, hey, this is this is what I do and this is why I do it and this is how I go about it, and they just love sharing with people. So now. We're blessed. Thanks, mate. So probably because it is a passion thing too, guys. It's not just a job. It's a passion. It's like, but how did you feel when you got him to, ah, <laughs> then, then you open up straight away. Yeah, absolutely. I'm fairly sure I know the answer to this question, but why do you do it? Why do you coach? Can't think of anything else better to do. <laughs> um, yeah, it's, um, it's definitely the way you someone else. Um, do amazing things they didn't think they could do. Um, if I take you back to the analogy of holding the back of the child's bike seat, you know, once the training wheels are off and then when do you let it go, that, that the elation that someone has when they perform above their best. And if you if you can't play anymore, then to be able to help someone else do it, maybe even it's a better thing in the first place, just to help someone else do something they think they couldn't do. Um, yeah, yeah that's, that's the buzz. Um, and it's a really interesting time in my life now where I'm transitioning from being head coach to spending a lot more time um, in the technical space trying to, trying to make um, wider ranging and, and scalable changes um, and every now and then being able to step onto the grass and say, oh, this is what it feels like, you know? So. And you, you – the – pathway of a coach isn't linear it doesn't sort of go like that it goes very much like that that that's just the reality of it so you know we talk about helping players develop resilience but how important is it for coaches to be resilient yeah it's a very interesting one isn't it when you fail um when you fail you know they say when you when you lose you learn and when you win um but I think uh, learning to what's the what's the the famous the famous line the um, treat treat both with contempt, um, you know success and failure. I think that you you've got to learn that failure is a point to learn and not a point that you're a bad person. If you're a bad person, you're a bad person anyway. Winning and losing. If if you allow losing a match or not performing well to mean that you're not a good person, then 
you've got to learn to to detach that um, to be able to continue to go forward as a coach. Um, and definitely there are setbacks, but if, if everybody was to look at them instead of letting their emotion get involved and look at those and say, here's an opportunity for me to solve something that's thrown at me, and later on that's going to be to my advantage because I'm going to get smarter and it's going to less often happen, uh, I think then people would attack those problems differently. Yeah. Um, yeah. But it's, no. it's, it, it, is, it is difficult for some people, when, especially if they lose their job over it, um, and that can be very, very challenging. And, and that's just the reality, isn't it? You, you probably learn, most coaches learn more when they're losing than they do from winning. L losing is much easier to, to learn from. We don't always necessarily analyse things as well when we win. But, of course, if you learn too much four or five weeks in a row as a coach, um, you're out pondering what your next job might be like. So it's, it's a tough it's a tough um, set of scales to balance that, but um, it, there, there are just wonderful opportunities that, that come around through this and, and doing what we do. So um, what have been some of your most enjoyable moments as a coach? Um, obviously, obviously um, realising I was lucky enough to take a team to a World Cup, that was pretty special. Um, one of the best moments is actually during COVID, spending time with my own son because there was no club training and we just went down the park and set challenges and watched him get better at things and try not to be too pushy. And then in between is the is the long list of players you mentioned, Heather. Um, uh, what a fortunate time I had at Westfields where I've worked with 20 or 30 Socceroos and Matildas um, and I can pick special moments from from almost every group, um, little one-liners that they said to me when they're doing something. Um, but seeing, again, seeing someone do do a, a difficult technical moment or make a decision in a game that sets them apart from everybody else yeah. um, and, and creates that, that, I guess, wow, we can do more. Like, look what that person just did. That, that, there's thousands of those moments, guys, and they're the ones that keep, keep fueling you every day when you when you when you're doing the grind, right? It's the chasing that moment where someone just does something amazing and adds to the one yesterday and yeah, so those are probably the, the key ones for me. Yeah. Always about people and relationships. Yeah. How about some of the valuable lessons you've learned along the way? What have been some of those? Um, self belief, persistence. Uh, dusting yourself off if things don't work out, uh, setting high standards so that you have the job, you don't have the job, you know you've done the best you can and therefore it's transferable. If something goes wrong, then you, you can go somewhere else. Um, preparation is always worth its weight in gold. But being flexible is another key thing. I think that in two ways. One, um, you know, you can't be that much of a perfectionist that, that you can't modify, whether it's in the session, decisions in the game, um, dealing with setbacks. Yeah, so those sort of things. I think being flexible, um, being consistent in how you treat people. Um, yeah. Setting high standards, it's really important because if, if you set high standards and then treat people really well, then it's a really yeah. great environment. Yeah. 
And I like that. So following on from that then, what does success look like? Yeah, it's, the, it's back to the Oli Roos discussion. It's, it's, um, it's the team winning and the individuals getting better. It's people having a better life from the experience of working with you. Yeah. Um, and uh, if, if you can make someone, um, inspire them to be a better person and set a higher standard, uh, if that also means that your team wins, then fantastic. Um, yeah. And if the person leaves you better than they came, then but how much better? How much better? And how much do they want to still get better? And what's their respect level once they leave? Do they always look back at you as someone who they might come to again for advice because they know that'll help them get better? That, that would be, yeah, special. Yeah. No, I like that. All right, then. We're, we're, we're on the downhill run. If you have one piece of wisdom that you could pass on to coaches, whether they were on the beginning part of their journey in the middle of it or closer to the end, one piece of wisdom for coaches, what would that be? Pay attention to what the player needs. Don't make it too complex. <clears throat> Try and observe as much as you impart knowledge. Yeah, put the player first. Really think about, have empathy for their situation. Um, think what motivates them and challenges them. Um, be flexible in how you try to help them solve the problem, not always one way, because they might just need it another way on a certain day. Um, yeah, all your planning and preparation and what you have an aspiration, but it really comes down to on the day being able to make as many of the individuals in your in your control um, make their make their I, I guess their challenge and appropriate and, and and take them to another level. Thanks for that, mate. Just following on, just coming to my head, where where were you on your coaching journey when you realised that, when that wisdom sort of sunk in and, and you went, yeah, this is this is what it's about. Yeah, it's hard to pick the point. I think I think it was like <laughs> a, a, blur, a blurring of the lines. I'll be honest. If I go way back to the start in 1993, so I was. 22 years old and I had a, a level three license. Yeah. And I thought to myself, I'm not bad. <laughs> I have the same license as Warren Maddich. You know, um, does that mean I'm as good as him? Am I up there with, with, uh, with Les Shineflow? Is that, does that mean I'm at his level, you know? And, um, and, and then there was a good 10 or 15 years of going out and trying to prove that you could coach and how good was my session and did I stand here and did I give the right this, that and the other. Um, so whether it came a little bit after parenthood, I don't know. Um, yeah. But certainly, um, when you start to look at athletes and think, is this, am I making this about me? And I don't know exactly when that was, but um, maybe some of the players I've worked with will tell me when it was. <laughs> <laughs> and if that ever happened, um, or it's just my imagination. <laughs> Thanks for that, mate. You're listening to the Football Coaching Life, a podcast brought to you by Football Coaches Australia and making media the podcast professionals. Today's guest is National Technical Director Trevor Morgan and Under 17 Joe is coach. Trev, that, that's normally that's the end of our normal sort of period of questioning here. Are you happy to throw a, a few questions that, that um, at you as a national TD that, that coaches out there 
um, might want to ask you themselves. We haven't sort of done this before, but a, a rare opportunity. Don't want to put you on the spot, but um, just I'm just some. To, <laughs> I'm happy to be on the spot with you guys. You're a, you're a brave man. We've never done this before. This, okay. The, the the in doing the research and looking at it, we looked at the that young group that you took. Um, in two, uh, 2019 and, and we celebrated, you know, what they did and then we got to the knockout stages. You mentioned Les Scheinflug before. I think, you know, Les was in charge of the youth team for a long, long time. 1999, we actually made the final of the Youth World Cup in New Zealand. Different tournament then, different times, an awful lot of investment in football around the world. How 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 far away are we from being able to do that again? Do you think? Every tournament individually might be different, guess. But the the truth being, um, that was a wonderful group, um, and, and Les did a great job. And I remember Jesse Van Stratton was probably, you know, inches away from saving that penalty, and, and it goes further. Um, uh, there are footballers with passion and talent in our country. Um, I believe we can do a better job of honing the, the real key qualities that they have that's going to give them a chance. I think we have to be honest that the whole world has changed. Some of the biggest nations in the world were not as invested in Youth World Cups 20 years ago. Yeah. Um, they're far more interested in it now, whether it's because of their selling players from their country becomes an issue and therefore it's a chance to get them in the shop window, whether it's just a case of saying, hang on, someone's winning this, it better be us because we're Brazil. Yeah. Um, uh, that's changed. Um, and the biggest challenge we have now is even even if we wind back to when the golden generation with Europe, they were fantastic players, right? They were fantastic oh, yeah. um, one of the things I think is different now is from then is there's a lot more players from Brazil, Africa, etc., able to get into the top leagues in the world. That didn't happen so much at that time. Um, and then we had the under 18 rule, which stopped some kids being able to go early like Harry did, um, or at least interfered with that. So their first level of access of a talented Australian player needs to either be a lot of game time in the A-League which we all know there's less of that than what there was in the National League. Absolutely. Okay. Then if they do go overseas, at what level are they getting exposure and are they playing regularly? Mm. Uh, whether there's kids here with the physical ability, the love of the game and the technique to play at a high level, for sure there is. For yeah. sure. It's actually what happens next. And that's a really important um, piece of the puzzle that we need to solve here and also help solve abroad for players. Yeah. The, the 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 other thing, of course, is to help the players get better. We've got to invest in the coaches getting better. So we've done, I think we've done a great job at licensing coaches uh, in the last ten fifteen years. You know, I, I I'm not even sure if we know how many thousands of coaches we we put through licenses. Um, the ongoing education um, has probably created a space for Football Coaches Australia to, to come out and, and do what we've been doing and, and to do more of that. Um, hopefully we can <laughs> we can find ways to to generate some revenue where we can do more of that overall because it's it's such such an important thing. But 
you know, in the, the principles, we talk about creating a, an environment to set up um, world-class coaches. So our coaches can become world-class. And I think, you know, we can, there's an argument to say that a number of them already are. Um, but how do we get more Australian coaches to be at that standard, to be on the pathway of being a Tanya Oxterby or, a, or an Ange Postacoglu or a Joe Montemuro? We very much like the players. It's, it's the level of the day-to-day that they get to experience once they do their qualification. Like a qualification, it's a license, right? It's a you've 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 been assessed as being competent um, at these major parts, same as you do a driver's license. But how you drive every day? Um, if you and I don't drive some days, if someone drives lazily every day, or someone's actually practicing in Formula One, the skill level is is determined by the day-to-day. So. Yeah hand-in-hand hand with helping our coaches is going to be developing our league to be larger, to have more jobs available, um, the national second tier coming in. Yes, we can put on great courses and great um, support, CPD activities and help share. That's really important is to be open and share knowledge and not be yep. like hiding things from people. But definitely it's the level at which that they can actually coach every day um, and the competitive environment they're in is going to really help develop that talent. And, and that's why you see some people having to go overseas either because they've been asked to or because they feel they need to go there to develop because there's a job that they can take at professional level and, and maybe there's yeah. enough jobs in Australia. Yeah. And, that, that I mean, that in itself can create some challenges for us. As we've just seen, we've, we've had Ange go through it, Muskie go through it. I think David Julich is now going through it where he's got a, a, um, a pro licence here and UEFA being UEFA don't recognise that. How, how do we, is that fixable from within Australia? Is that a FIFA thing to fix? How, how, how can we get this world standard of coaching where, where we're not getting people investing a huge amount of time and money, but then, you know, get, get an offer of a job in Europe but can't take it up because their qualifications aren't recognised? How do we... How do you, any thoughts on how we can fix and address that? Yeah, I think there's several there's several initiatives we we've already started to, to investigate. Um, I'll, I'll be completely honest with you, Gaz. I in the last two weeks I've had conversations with Mauricio Marquez, who's the head of coaching in Brazil, and with uh, with the head of the technical director of Argentina. Okay, yeah. their coaches their coaches aren't recognised in UEFA either. Yeah. It's a global problem. It's UEFA who have the money and the power protecting jobs for their coaches. Um, it's a problem that FIFA is aware of, but for some reason maybe not able to just solve right now. Um, uh, we have peers in US soccer telling us the same problem, Japan. So one of the issues people might say is that in Asia, the level is so diverse and whilst Australia is a, is a first world country and runs first world courses and has the right through the AFC convention to to hold our own pro licenses without intervention from AFC. So we are obviously well regarded in Asia. Um, once it goes on an AFC license, there's also the course that's run in another country that might not be at the same standard. And, and that's one viewpoint is that there's a difference in, in the quality even within one uh, confederation and does that weaken our claims. Yeah. Um, but bottom line, it's a global problem. I think FIFA is looking into it. There's definitely a number of 
awareness of people in really high levels in coach education around the globe who, who feel the same thing. It's holding back mm. coaches who deserve the opportunity. And, and it's, it's interesting as well because there's a flip side to that. We're here in Australia and, and Asia, we're over the moon to accept a UEFA Pro licence. Um, you know, we, we go, it, it, do you think that's because we perceived a UEFA Pro licence is a coach that's done a UEFA Pro licence, do we perceive that they're a better quality coach, that their qualification is better or stronger, do you think? Or is that, is we, you know, where do you think that comes from? I'm sure there's a, I'm sure there's a percentage of people who would see it that way. You know, they did their pro licence in, in, in England, so it must be this, or they did it in Italy, it must be this. And I, and I think the standards are high. There's no question yeah. the standards of the people getting into the course in the first place. So the level of the group, take on the first day of conversation is high um i think the courses would be a high standard uh but i think part of the reason why we accept people from with the wafer license here in australia is because we're accepting people we're not looking for to exclude i think say okay fair enough you've done your yeah. training come and coach yeah uh, and i don't think i'd ever want to change it. i don't think we want to be saying to try and get even with your wafer we'd say that your license doesn't count here i think that's <laughs> that's not the way to do it uh, it's not not the Australian way of doing things, is it, mate? Look, thanks. There's there's a million and one questions that, that, that we could ask. What, one final one from me. What what? How best do you think Football Coaches Australia can help Football Australia and the member feds in terms of that ongoing coach education? I think I think one of the great initiatives that. I mean, Football Coaches Australia, one of the great things they do is, is support coaches behind the scenes individually. And I think that, that that is still ongoing and unbelievable. And I think every coach appreciates the individual help they get. When it comes to partnering with, with Football Australia in terms of education and development, some of the great initiatives we had, Gaz, when we, when we had more access before COVID, to open things up, where myself, Graham, many other coaches opened up a national team camp and said, you know what, because we love Football Coaches Australia and we want football coaches to get better, here's the yeah. door open, come and have a look at what we do. I, I Certainly that personal touch means a lot to people and I think that that's the best way to show the partnership. Um, I think there'll be opportunities when we when we can open things up again and run conferences together, et cetera, there'll be those opportunities. Yeah. But um, it's a, yeah, that, that standing beside um, and opening the door to coaches, I think is, is probably the best demonstration of where we can go. Yeah. Good on you, mate. Thank you. Really appreciate uh, you sharing your time with us today. I know you're a busy man. You've got more. <laughs> I read through the list of tasks that you had to do as a national technical director and coaching teams. It's, it's, it's a big gig. So keep up the great work. Give our best wishes to um, Smudger and, and Ray Dower, who are uh, your technical assistants there. And, um, yeah, we look forward to seeing our national youth teams uh, back on the world stage in the not-too-distant future. Thank you, Trevor Morgan. Thanks very much, Gary, and have a great weekend. Cheers, mate. You've been listening to the Football Coaching Life, podcast brought to you by Football Coaches Australia and Making Media, the podcast professionals. If you've enjoyed today's podcast, if you want to find out more about coaching, more about Football Coaches Australia and what we can do to help, please go to footballcoachesoz.org.au. You can listen to this podcast on any of your favourite podcast channels and today, which is Friday the 26th of March, I think, we actually go live with a, the YouTube version of this. So if you search on YouTube for Football Coaches Australia, 
you can listen or you can watch the video. You have a great day.